Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. All right, David. So it's Tox Talks Chapter Seven. That's a that's a tongue twister. Tox Talk uh, Chapter Seven. <laughs> yeah. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Mm. I've been really excited about this one, and I can't wait to introduce our guest. But well, you've been teasing me about it since you got back from Miami. It, I got excited in Miami. So when I went to AMWC in I think it was February this year, I did a couple of talks and. As always, when you go to a conference, you want to soak up whatever new knowledge you can yeah. find. And I wasn't expecting my brain to be re-scrambled. But yeah. uh, Dr. John Joseph, who we've got on today, did that. And he had me on the edge of my seat for a good 20 minutes. And I was like, this is truly revolutionary. Yeah. So, Well, I, what's the question? The question is, have we been dosing our patients correctly with toxins? Well, his, the title of his talk was, we've been doing toxins wrong for the last 35 years. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, you got my attention now. Yeah. Everyone, so People um, just pulled over on the side of the road. They, <laughs> yeah. like, what is happening here? So anyway, let's introduce our guest, Dr. John Joseph. How are you today? Very well in yourselves. We are wonderful. And it's a pleasure to have you. Now, first of all, I want to talk about who you are, what your background is, and, and I'd love to know how the hell you got involved in all of these trials. So tell us your background. Well, I, I started out as a head and neck surgeon, and then I did a fellowship in facial plastics, and I was supposed to go back to the University of Chicago to do academia, and the gentleman I trained with in Beverly Hills, very well-known, famous guy, kind of asked me if I wanted to stay on in his practice, so I did. And as I grew and became more involved with the minimally invasive stuff, this product code Botox came on the scene and I uh, adopted it fairly early. 1991 was the wow. first bottle purchased and used. And uh, since then, I started to develop clinical trial business. And I fast forward to seven years ago where I quit doing surgery. All I do now is uh, clinical trials and research. Right. And what motivated you to start taking on toxin treatments? Because how many years ago did you say it was? 1991. 1991. So we're looking at, what, nearly 30 years ago or more than? More, 32. More than 30 years ago. So, I mean, if you said to someone today, I, I do Botox, no one would, would, no one would raise an eyebrow. You like that? <laughs> um, but, uh, but back then, right, well, we're talking about Gene Carruthers, we're talking about Michael Caine. This is a very, very early day. So what made you think that this was a good idea? Because there was no path before. There was no, like, you know, massive industry and all these billions of dollars being spent, it was fringe, I guess. So where was your head at at that time and what made you decide to pursue it? Well, I was fortunate. I listened to a talk by a Dr. Bill Binder, 
Yeah. And he also was an early adopter, earlier than me. And I listened to his talk and I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. And I also said, what's the negative? Because if you looked at the science, this completely wore off and you were no worse for it after, at that point, three to four months. So it prompted me to give it a whirl, give it a try. And when, you know, obviously you only have to use it once or twice to realize this is really amazing. Yeah. Is uh, Bill Binder still around? Like what, what was his uh, background? He's, he's not, I mean, I think as he should, it's, he's uh, found more interesting things to do, basically enjoy life. He still practices, but not nearly like he used to. So he's doing fly fishing now. Uh, what's, what's, <laughs> yeah. Living, living the good life. He's in Utah a lot. Yeah, right. We ask because uh, David and I have sort of realized that we should almost do like a, a legacy history or a pioneer um, type episodes of getting these real early adopters on to talk about, you know, the, the why. Because I remember we had Jean Carruthers on um, a long time ago, and she, she said that she, she presented her findings at a big derm conference and everyone thought she was mad. They thought she'd lost her marbles. <laughs> Because, you know, she's injecting this toxin into people's faces for something really frivolous. Uh, I did some inverted commas there if you can't see me. So, yeah, I mean, I imagine your colleagues probably thought you were a bit mental, you know, when you're an ENT surgeon and a surgeon doing other types of things. Well, I was told I was going to be run out of town by many of my colleagues. Then. Right. And then I would, I would say to them, hey, have you tried this stuff, Botox? And they truly looked at me like I was a madman. <laughs> And said, you're going to be run out of town for this, man. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Wow. And yeah. that's when I would say, did you read the science? And, of course, they had. Yeah. So that's okay. It's crazy, isn't it? There's there's so much dogma in, involved in the science. Well, everything, really. But you think about, go back through history and look at all the crazy things that have, what we thought was crazy at the time have now become normal. But we, we just seem to be continually, you know hesitant yeah. for, for, to new ideas what why do you think that is just from a you know from a science perspective it's easy not to change yeah it's harder to change and i think that will be the key takeaway of this whole talk yeah. to be completely honest it's yeah. easier not to change yeah um, so anyone new to these Tox Talks, if you're a new listener, we, we've gone through several episodes where we focused on a particular toxin and, you know, we've got an expert who uses that toxin to talk about it. But this one is going slightly off piste and we're going to be talking about how we've been using all of them wrong, mm -hmm. uh, according to Dr. Joseph. So um, how did you get involved in the trials? I mean, you said seven years ago, you're not even doing surgery at all anymore. So how, how do you get invited to be, become a researcher or, or why did you become a researcher? Well, I, because I in, embraced botulinum toxin early, I soon developed a huge Botox practice. I was injecting myself 650 bottles a year right. of this. And so because of that volume, when Metasys wanted to start clinical trials to bring Desport to market, they just said, hey, would you like to do a clinical trial? And I didn't even really know what they were talking about. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, so they handed me the protocol. They handed me the budget. I looked at it and went, sure. And after doing one, I turned to my wife and I said, I had no idea that this income source existed. Hmm. And I'm going to push it to see how far I can go with it. Seven years ago, I quit doing surgery. Wow. Can you give us some idea of, you know, 1991, your, your average patient's probably never heard of this stuff. Your colleagues think you're mental for doing it. 
how did you develop that practice? How did you advertise it? How did you talk to people? You know, what was it like then? Because it's so normal now. Well, I it would take 20 minutes in the beginning to convince a patient to allow me to inject them. And I then printed out a two-page sheet because I got so tired of saying the same thing over and over again that before I would see them, they had to read the sheet. That made it much easier because then I would say, okay, did you read the sheet? Yes, I did. Great. Do you have any questions? You know, they all invariably did have questions, but not nearly as many. Mm. And the results speak for themselves. So once they got injected and their friends saw it, then their friends came in. So it actually, initially it was difficult. There was quite a bit of resistance. But after a year or so, it was uh, pretty easy because they brought in their friends. Yeah. And how were you treating these initial groups of patients? What were the protocols that you were given? Obviously, we understand that the 2.5 standard dilution that's been accepted. Uh, well, maybe after today, that's going to change. Um, but <laughs> how, how, where, where did those initial protocols come from? And, and how did you sort of process them and, and sort of roll them out into your, into your clinic and, and decide that they were correct and and well, appropriate for patient treatments? Well, I mean, the Carruthers, of course, are the pioneers of this uh, treatment, and that was on label. Mm -hmm. So, at, first of all, Allergan couldn't even talk to me because right. I wasn't doing it for therapeutic indications. So even though I was buying 650 bottles a year, I literally, they wouldn't even come into my office. Mm, right? Wow. So then I would talk to guys like Bill Binder, and I also would read any papers that would come out. But the established unlabeled uh, volume of reconstitution was two and a half. So I just assumed, well, that's got to be correct. And I, I created the, the hammer, the universal hammer that we all had, 2.5 cc's in a 100-unit bottle. And everything looked like a nail to me. So using that solution, I just kept beating the indications with it as best as you could to get a good result without adverse events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember Jean shared that, um, and she still does a one mil dilution for 100 units, but she said in that initial pivotal trial, they had a couple of arguments. Some wanted one mil, some wanted 10 mil. And so I think two and a half was just like an average or a median of all of those arguments. So it was yeah. a bit arbitrary. It wasn't you know, inverted commas, scientifically backed. It was just kind of an agreement. Is, is that your understanding? Oh, she, I mean, I was, I know Jean and think the world of her. And she basically said there was no science behind this 2.5. It was, you got to start somewhere. Mm. And, it, and that volume of reconstitution with that dose of 20 units, it worked. It was safe, number one. And number two, it worked pretty well. And you could monetize it quite easily. And it was repeat business. So it, it, it worked very well for a very long time. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And I want to stress that you work with all of the companies or you have worked with all the companies, including some stuff that hasn't even been launched, um, at least in the States. So um, can you just give us some background into what that what that process is like? Like, what, what does it mean to be a consultant? How much work do you do? What do you do day to day? How long do these trials take? All of that sort of stuff that we, we as injectors never really get to see. Well, the toxin trials are not as long as some of the filler trials. And they can be as short as, uh, well, the type E is in eBay trial. That was real short. That was, you know, in a sense, four months. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the uh, phase three trials, the repeat dose, 
those can last a year and a half plus or minus. So they don't last awfully long. Uh, and all the toxin trials, once Allergan got Botox approved for aesthetic indications, all the other companies pretty much piggybacked on that protocol because it was the path of least resistance through the FDA. Yeah. And that was your goal and mission is to get through the FDA. So you just did what Allergan did, uh, who were the pioneers, obviously, of toxins. And that same format was used repeatedly and still is used repeatedly, even up to HUGEL when they did their clinical trials uh, to uh, get their product approved. It was 2.5 in a 100-unit bottle. I'm pretty sure I did the trial, so mm. I forget it. And then, but yeah. So that was the format used because it was the path of least resistance. Yeah, it's right. interesting because I often liken the units of Botox to almost be like the US dollar. They're like the currency that, that everyone sort of yeah, mentally against, thinks yeah, by. Yeah. And, and you're right. Maybe that's just the easy way of doing it because if it's done before the FDA themselves understand what that means, that language, and it's just easier to not change. Mm. What do you think? If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So often pharma companies get a bit of a bad rap for you know, the marketing spins and all the money that they make. But I mean, it might be good to get some insights from you into terms of, you know, how much work and effort goes into the into these clinical trials. Like, just give us a, a bit of an understanding of what's involved. Well, the sponsor who you're talking about, right? Not me, not an investigator, you're yes. talking about the sponsors. Well, it's a Herculean task to get the FDA to allow you to do phase two and phase three pivotal trials for approval. The amount of money you're spending is mind-blowing. I mean, $20, $30, $40 million. Now, that's just for like the phase three. You have to do a phase two trial. It may very well take $50 million to $75 million for a sponsor to get through phase two and phase three trials with the toxin. Uh, do you mind explaining what phase one, two, and three are for our listeners who may, you know? Well, phase one, well, there's animal Phase one is safety with humans. Phase 1A or B is do escalating dose. It's always safety. Safety first, escalate the dose. From the phase two then, because of the dosing trials that you did in phase 1A and B, the company, the sponsor has said, basically, this is the dose we want to now expand the number of subjects and see if this is the way we want to go for phase three. So they, you know, they make larger trials. If the data supports safety, number one, efficacy followed, and it looks like a go, then phase three starts using that protocol. If they have to modify it, they may have to do a phase 2B, uh, but if they've done it right, a phase two, then they can go right on to phase three and get an, an approval. Right. And how long does this normally take? <laughs> <laughs> how long <does> it <laughs> Six years is conservative. Sorry, six what? years? Six years is conservative, eight years, somewhere between six and eight years before you get approval. And I guess what we didn't mention, which is kind of obvious, there's that 50 million plus for those trials, but also they've got to develop a product and, and that's got to, you know... Market it. Market, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, I mean, this costs probably hundreds of millions, really. Yes. A hundred million dollars start to finish with the marketing and the production and yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's useful to... to see it from the other side you know like you said pharma often gets a bit of a yeah. bad rap but i think that there's a massive risk and and money involved in yeah. this yeah yeah so it goes so onto the topic of today then 
So um, we've been doing toxins wrong for the last 35 years. So maybe you could just give us some sort of insight into what we mean by on-label, because just, just to set the scene for maybe people who are newer to injecting, they don't even understand what that means. What, what is on-label and what do we mean by off-label? And what are the implications of doing off-label? Well, the on-label is the protocol that was used in the pivotal trials, the phase three trials that the FDA agreed to allow a sponsor to conduct. And in conducting that trial, if it's found to be safe and works, mm -hmm. then the FDA blesses that protocol. So whatever you have in that protocol, that's what you as a company have to promote in marketing. Yes. You can't yes. talk about something else. So if it's 20 units in the glabella, with a total of 0.1 ml per five injection sites, putting two and a half cc's in a 100-unit bottle, that's it. Yeah. The company has no leeway to change that pitch to both the doctor and or the consumers. Yeah, and that's really important because, you know, I'm a trainer. I'm sure you've trained in the past, John. Um, you know, we as trainers often get criticized for sort of speaking the country, uh, sorry, the company's mantra. But we have to because that's what, the FDA or the TGA or whichever country, and that's what they have approved. So whilst it's, of course, right to talk about our own experience and what we do actually do in real life, I think when you're teaching beginners, that starting point of on-label, I think is actually really important because mm. um, it teaches you a scientifically backed, trialed result. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because you've often, you've often sort of challenged that in, in other podcasts. Uh, what in particular? I'm um, saying, you know, that, when when a trainer or a KOL gets up on stage, they're sort of a stooge because they have to say whatever the com the company wants them to say. Yeah, but the, but there's a process behind that. If they're paid by the company, okay, yes. If they're a consultant or a paid speaker, that's correct. Yeah, you're paid. Get up on the podium. You have to toe the party line, so to speak. You have to talk on label. If you are not being paid, then it's still America in the sense if you're here, <laughs> you can talk about whatever you want. Yeah. If you're hiring a company to go out and train people, you're getting a check from the sponsor, the company, you have to stay on label. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, I've often said, this is what the on-label indication is. However, in my experience, and then I'll say something slightly veering from that because it's my own experience. So I think we've got leeway to, to be honest, but as long as you clarify what you're saying is your own experience versus on label. It's a little gray here in America, and there have been companies that have been fined significantly for having their trainers go off label. Interesting. And when I say significantly, to the tune of, not, not, not in the aesthetics, but to the tune of a billion dollar fine. Wow. So in the States, you really have to be careful if you are being paid by the company. If you go off label, well, I don't want to do it yeah. because I'm afraid of getting fined. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty full on, isn't it? Well, I'm glad that I've made it explicit. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, all, it's all worked out well so far. So you, you took us back to 1991. You were doing the 2.5 mil and 100 units Botox. You did what the Carruthers did. It all worked fine. So what made you go, hold on a minute, maybe there's another way of thinking about this. What was your eureka moment? Well, I was doing an, a, a variable dosing trial for, uh, well, it was going to be, it was Reloxin back then, but now it's Desport. Reloxin, and, that's a good name. Yeah. Right. That, that's the greatest name. Better than but Disport. They, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they allowed us to look at the muscle mass 
and adjust the dose accordingly to a bracketed dose. So we could go up to 80 units of Desport in a male in the glabella if we thought it was appropriate. And I think it was 70 in a female, might have been 60, but I think it was 70. So we could look at them frown and go, boy, you've got a lot of muscle mass. We're going to go a little higher. Yeah. When they when they crunched the data and I was at the investigator meeting where they were showing the data, I noticed that there was a linear increase in duration that correlated with the dose. So I turned to one of the people from Metasys and said, look, I, there's a signal there. How far can we go with this? Right. I mean, has anyone pushed this to see? What is, where does it finally plateau? Yeah. And so I said, give me some money, which I say a lot. Give me some money <laughs> to do a trip, right? And let's find this out. And so, no, they didn't. And I reached out to another company and said, hey, why don't we try this? And they said, no. So I did it myself. I kind of paid for my own trial, not, not to the extent that a sponsor would do with the FDA. Yeah. And lo and behold, when I increased the dose, the duration increased also. Yeah. And so then I pitched it to Metasys and said, look, guys, it works. I did this myself. Here's the data. Clearly, if, as I increased the dose, the duration increased. What do you think? Nothing. For years. <laughs> I do mean years. Right. So to summarize that, you, you, back in, I think it's 2006, um, you did a trial mainly for male patients and you said, hey, you've got a strong frown, you've probably got more muscle mass, let's put some more stuff in, that that's logically makes sense. And you noticed not only the result was better, they had a controlled frown line, but it lasted longer. And you thought, well, this is, you know, pretty amazing. Surely the company would say, this is fantastic, let's explore it more. And they said, no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Did they say why? What was their reason for saying no? It's easier not to change. Right. <laughs> okay. Interesting. They were, they were making money. They were doing well. You know, they their launch was a little tough in the beginning, but mm -hmm. they were gaining market share. And I don't think they wanted to change anything right then. It was a little too scary. I didn't have, I believe, the credibility that I do currently also, in all fairness, so that, you know, they go, well, this one guy, he's nice. It seems like he's smart, but, you know, we're okay with where we are right now. Yeah. I, I took some notes from um, one of your slides, and I think your, your trial was, you know, it's quite simple, but it, it, it proved the point. So you had, I think, 10 subjects, moderate to severe frown lines, and you upped the dose from on-label up to 100, 125, or 150 units, and lo and behold, um, the 150 units lasted, well, almost double the on-label dose in terms of longevity of the result, which is pretty spectacular, really. Yeah. Um, but I, I just find it weird that the company went, nah, not interested. I find that bizarre. And, it, and, and now it's so timely because, of course, we've had a, a six-month toxin now on the market, Daxify, and everyone's like, ooh, isn't that interesting? But, you know, <laughs> we knew this, you know, almost 20 years ago with the work that you were doing. So I find that fascinating. I mean, big companies make unusual decisions all the time. And we've, we've spoken about this kind of stuff. It's, you never know what goes on in boardrooms and what agendas and, and you know, other factors that we not, may not be aware of. But I mean, it sounds bizarre to us, but yeah. I'm sure they had their reasons. <laughs> so I think there was an eight-year period before, you know, Galderma took over Disport from Medicis, I think. Uh, I can't remember what year that was. I think 2009. But 
at some point they started listening to you. So tell us about that trial. Well, finally, Galderma got it. And as soon as Galderma got Desport, I, on my own dime, flew to Dallas and pitched them and said, look, guys, come on. This totally makes sense. Give me some money. Let's do a trial. So we did it. And it clearly showed that increasing the dose married to also decreasing the volume of reconstitution was safe and extended the duration dramatically. Yeah. So again, I kind of thought, this is great. Now this study, and I, and I did it at two sites. I made sure that there was another site, Dr. Ed Williams and, and uh, uh, Allison Pontius in New York. Um, I made sure there was another site to give it credibility because I could easily be accused of proving myself correct. So I insisted there were two sites and both sites got identical data. That's actually so a really that, good point. How, how do you, you know, when you have a, a, a conviction in your mind that, you know, you think to onto something, it's very hard sometimes to step away from your own internal bias, even if you don't mean it to, to sort of be biased. What, what sort of things can you put in place in a trial to, to sort of, you know, get rid of that bias? You've said, obviously, having it multi-center, you have it double blind, but like, what can you do personally to sort of step back from, from the process and stop being tunnel visioned? Don't lie to yourself. That's true in life. It's also true in science. Mm -hmm. If it isn't what it is, then it isn't. And you have to accept that. There have been, I've had, I've, I, I do a lot of investigator initiated trials because I'll have some idea. I'll pitch it to a company. They'll think it's correct. We'll go ahead and do it. It didn't work. You just have to own it. That's right. it. And it, it's hard because you are really tempted to lie. And clearly in science, we know there are trials and investigators who have lied and who falsely recorded the data and the results because they couldn't accept that their idea and concept was not valid. Yeah. So the biggest thing you can do is don't lie to yourself. And I think that's true in life in general, but especially in science. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. And I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this. We can chop it out if you're not. But obviously, you're a paid investigator. You know, it's your job now. So... um do you think there's ever a conflict of interest because of that? I mean, I know you work for all of the companies, so to some extent that removes, you know, being biased to one or the other. But like, what do you say to people who might criticize and say, well, you're paid to say that? Well, I've never lied about any data on any trial, for sure. Yeah. And I believe most of the sponsors know that. And in fact, I have told sponsors partway through a trial that you should stop this trial because it's wrong. All right. not, not safety, but because it's the protocol's wrong, that you're not able to capture the data, the efficacy, and you should stop. And one company did. I'll give credit to Galderma. They, I told them they, they were doing a uh, platysma trial, and I told them the, the way this protocol is and the way things are going down, you are not going to get good data. You need to stop it. You're wasting your money. They did investigate it a little bit, but they actually said, He's right, and they stopped the trial midway through, and it was a phase two trial. Great. And then, of course, what did I do? I said, give me some money. <laughs> I think I figured out a way to fix this protocol, and I did. And it's been uh, it's going to be published in JDD in January. And I call it a standardized approach to injecting the platysma because it's one of the muscles that people have played around with. Adverse events occurred that were significant. Everybody ran to the hills, you know, ran away from the indication. 
but I figured out a way to safely do it and get a great duration. Uh, so, that, you know, there, there are times when what a company is doing, you have to have integrity and not just take the check. Because by stopping the trial, I also lost money. Yes. Right. But the right thing to do is to tell the truth. And so I hopefully have a reputation for being just that, doing just that. Well, the next, the next uh, fad uh, is the Barbie talks for the traps. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you can develop a protocol for that one. <laughs> Some things are just a little too out there for even me. Yeah. I tend to push the envelope. But that's one I just thought, really? I <laughs> So, you know, the Barbie talks. Can I ask you, John, um, obviously intuitively you put more stuff into a muscle that paralyzes it. It it should last longer. I mean, intuitively that sounds like it makes sense, but we've always been taught as um, injectors when we do our sort of basic science when you're learning how to use a toxin that, you know, it works on the SNAP25, et cetera, et cetera. But really what's happening is after about three or four months, you get new little nerve endings growing and the muscle wakes up again so what is your proposed mechanism for how it's lasting longer and you know is it just the same thing that but but just more delayed or what is the physiology behind why it works longer well i think we've been undersaturating the nerve right right? we've been injecting enough to cross a threshold where clinically there's no contraction now, we do get sprouting. We do see that. But the sprouting itself, these twigs that come off are very ineffective. And they're actually very short-lived because the body actually, after a while, starts to pull them back in. I think sprouting, if you think about it, sprouting is more likely a reparative mechanism that is due to trauma rather than chemical denervation. Mm-hmm. Because the caveman, or when we were still in the evolutionary ladder, we didn't have Botox or Desport. And, and most of the time we needed to re-innervate a muscle was from trauma. Yeah. So the chemical denervation is a different creature. And I think initially, the, and this is my own conjecture, but I think initially the nerve does do sprouting. But once SNAP25 starts to be remade, and there's uh, the, uh, the fixing of the SNAP25 that's been cleaved, the, the neuron, the terminal nerve starts to abandon the sprouting and it, gain, it, it chemically refixes itself by producing more SNAP25. Hmm. So that's what I think happened. And I think we've been undersaturating the nerve so that that process more rapidly occurs. If we give more toxin, more SNAP25 is cleaved. The toxin hangs around a little while, too. It isn't like it goes away in a day. The light chain of, of type A toxin stays active for quite a while. Mm. And also, SNAP25 is not produced just in the soma of the nerve because it would take so long to go all the way down the axon. There's endoplasmic reticulum in the axon, too. So SNAP25 starts to get replenished. And those that have been cleaved are already starting to get replaced. And I think that there was, we were crossing the threshold. We were giving enough toxin to stop it for a while, but we weren't going all the way into the end zone as we stay here, say here in the States with football. We might have crossed the goal line, but we needed to push all the way back to the end of the goal line uh, of the end zone, so to speak. And then let it start to repair, and it just took longer to get back into the playing field. That's yeah. how I looked at it. 
Got it, David? Yep, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a bit of American football, so I got, I got that. We're good. Anyways, um, go, okay, so going back to that uh, first trial that Gal Derma eventually took on, thing is, I think you published it 2016. By the way, guys, yes. if you're listening, we're going to, well, we haven't even asked Dr. Joseph, but we wondered if we can invite you back to do a webinar with us where we could show some data, some slides, some pictures, because a lot of this stuff is, I mean, it's great to listen into in your car, but maybe you want to see it. Yeah. So I think if you're keen, we can do a webinar where we can do your, mm. your, do your talk. Perfect. Yeah. Thank um, you for asking. No, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that trial, what what did it basically show? How how long longer could you extend the on label dose to? You know, if you doubled the dose, tripled the dose, what what were the sort of um, durations of the effect? Well, it depends on what yardstick you use to measure duration, right? Some are return to baseline. Some are a uh, one-point improvement by the investigator's assessment or a two-point improvement, two-point composite improvement, hmm. uh, going to mild to moderate, and, uh, you know, or going to, excuse me, to a, to a none to a mild. Is that a responder? So there's many different yardsticks that are used to, ga- to, to, to say it worked, right? Yes. My own personal favorite is a one-point improvement from the clinical investigator when 50% of the subjects have still a one-point improvement yeah. evaluated on the validated scale by the, the uh, principal investigator. That's where I personally look for as, as the, the duration, right? But when you look at it in general, we've been accepting three to four months as a duration. It's double that, again, depending on which yardstick you use. It's anywhere from six to eight months, depending wow. on how you look. That's actually a really good point, and... Maybe I'll ask you, David, because you're yep. sort of the lay perspective. Often patients come back and you've owned businesses where they say it didn't work. <laughs> and, you know, subjectively, you can very clearly see that it did and you've got photos to prove it. But when you're going through a trial, sometimes it has to be a two-point difference from, you know, severe to mild or whatever. So w- what's your experience in sort of... Um, you know, trying to appease the FDA when really you can see a difference anecdotally, but the FDA won't accept it because it's not a two-point change or, or whatever, John. Do, do you struggle with that sometimes, sort of proving effect? Well, the FDA has never absolutely said, to my knowledge, that in order for you on your package insert on label to claim a duration, here's the yardstick we want you to use. There, I don't think there is one. Now, mm-hmm. The FDA is leaning more and more towards a two-point composite improvement. And what does that mean? That means both the subject and the principal investigator have to to say that the subject went from one uh, from a grade on their baseline validated scale two notches over, two-point improvement in order to be a responder. And then they measure 50% of that when when whatever amount becomes a responder when there's a 50% decay rate to the initial amount that were a two point responder, they drop the line down on the duration and they're tending to lean towards that. Hmm. The saying that's the duration we're going to allow you to put on a package insert, but see, that's not fair because it's a very stringent, it's an extremely high bar yeah. and that's not yeah. used in all the trials done up until recently. So it's kind of a mess right now as to what a sponsor, a company needs to show to the FDA so that the FDA will say, you now can claim that as your duration. Mm. It's not that absolute currently. 
Yeah. Right. Sorry, I asked you both a question, then I jumped to yeah, John. Well. But, but as a business owner, when a patient comes back and said, didn't work, mm-hmm. and then you've got photo saying, yeah, it did. Yeah. Like, what do you do with that? How do you unscramble that? Well, I mean, the first step is actually showing them the before and after photos. A lot of the time you've got this perception drift or people forgot what their baseline was. I mean, getting it for so long. We saw a lot of this during COVID mm. um, where people had extended periods away from treatment and they really got to see what they look like untreated, <laughs> yeah. you know, because they're going for not three months, but in six or 12 months. Lots of divorces them. then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, I think, and this is why, you know, clinical photography is so important and making sure that you're recording your clinical notes correctly and mm. all those kinds of things. So often it's just a process of educating the patient, getting them to come in, showing them before and after photos, explaining that, you know, it's not an exact science, that, you know, you will start to get some movement returning. It's, you know, your face is, is an evolving canvas, you're aging, your muscles are getting stronger over time. So a lot of it is just communication and, and having good, reliable clinical photography good advice yeah yeah I, I often find these fda or maybe tj um bars like you said john i, I find them too arbitrary you know what, what a patient wants is to look better they don't care if it's 2.3 point or one point they just want to look in the mirror and go yeah that's better my wrinkle softer and so it, it seems a little bit weird a bit arbitrary but i yeah. guess they need a specific goal otherwise it's just yeah, how do you rate this stuff? Yeah, though it just becomes everything subjective, which can sometimes make it difficult when yeah. you kind of standardize things. What what would your su- suggestion be if you if you had control of the FDA for <laughs> for these sorts of trials? How would you change it? My favorite is a one point improvement. What when do fifty percent of the initial responders? When are there now only fifty percent of the initial responders? with a one point or more improvement by the principal investigator. So if you started out and you had 100 subjects and uh, that all had a one point or more improvement, when you get to where only 50% of them have a one point or more improvement, by my assessment, drop a line down on the bar to the time frame. To me, that's the duration that I believe a sponsor should be allowed to claim on a package insert mm. to attest to the duration of their specific talks. But if you look at the other way around, 50% would say, well, that was shit. That didn't work. (laughs) So (laughs) you'd have, I don't know, you could look at it either way, couldn't you? (laughs) Can't win. (laughs) Can't win. Well, I guess my question, why 50%? Why not, I don't know, 75, a majority, a clear majority? The Kaplan-Meyer curve always does like 50% statistics. And it's a one point or more improvement, right? It is you only have one point improvement. You can have a two point or even a three point improvement and still be a responder. Yeah. It's when half of the ones that did respond are, are now left using that criteria, that yardstick. That to me is a, is a pretty good way to standardize it. It's never going to be perfect. But for me, that's the best I think there is. So after this, uh, Allegan, Mertz and Galdoma proceeded to do their own trials um, on the toxins and, and the dosing. So what what did they say when you showed them the results of your trial? Like what, what was the initial response? I mean, you've had these initial conversations where they told you to go away, they weren't interested, and obviously now things have changed a little bit. So what was that conversation and reaction like? Well, I was first able to convince Galderma to do it. Yeah. They, I mean, excuse me, Allergan to do it. Allergan was the first one to do it. They published later, but Allergan, I was the first one to start these variable dosing trials or the escalating dose trial. Then that was followed by, I believe, Mertz and Galderma, I think, was third, if I'm not 
as far as when the trial started, mm-hmm. not when they published. And I was I was able to I had to go and, you know, battle it out with these, you know, people at Allergan and all these companies to say, come on, it's 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 here. It's real. We You should do it. And once one of them did it, when Allergan did it and the data was positive, well, then it's obligatory. The other two had to do the trial to show they, too, yeah. had a toxin that could last six months or longer. Yeah. And of course, Daxi is hovering around, you know, yeah. in the trial trying to get a six-month approval. Yeah. So they were forced to. Yeah. May I ask, what was your personal personal motivation for doing this? I mean, this is their product. They're the ones that are going to make all the money out of being able to have, you know, potentially, you know, slightly modified, you know, uh, protocol that might sell more tox or sort of take things to another level. So you're getting all these no's. You're trying to help these companies realize they could get more out of their product or improve the efficacy what was driving you to do this? What was in it for you? What was what was the motivator? Fun. Okay. <laughs> well, I, can- I was fortunate that when I was busy doing facelifts in Beverly Hills, I lived beneath my means, invested well. And once I really didn't feel the need anymore to make more of something I already had plenty of money, now I'm not Elon Musk by any means, <laughs> then I said well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And to be honest with you, the aesthetic patient kind of changed their nature a bit since I started. And at some point, I just said, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I like science more than uh, having a a very busy private practice. It was my own choice. So it's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to have fun and enjoy it more. So that's why I phased out of surgery and that and yeah. Let's figure some stuff out. Yeah. Let's have some- Just you, you raised an interesting point there in that response about the profile of the stand of the general aesthetic patient changing. How do you how do you think they've changed? Not for the better. Right. Okay. The unrealistic expectations, you know, the social media, the selfies, the all this stuff where I'm just like I felt there were times I was going to jump out of my skin when a, a patient would get me in the exam room, pull this thing out, and start showing me 600 pictures of themselves with various contortions of their face or whatever. Yeah. And I just thought, John, you can do better than this, right? Yeah. Because I'm just not enjoying this as yeah. much. So they became very intense. Yeah. And, unrealistic expectations yeah what do you think jack is that is that an accurate it's, it's uh, real i mean yeah. i've seen it i'm I, I certainly wasn't i was only 11 years old in 1991 yeah. but yeah i've seen it um i started injecting 2008 um you know in the uk and it was really small no one was really doing much filler we didn't even have cannulas at the time and expectations were low but but good you know yeah. the results were great i i liked what i saw on my patients and they loved the results and it was a happy transaction yeah and and everyone was good yeah. and then it's just become more and more complicated of course we're doing more treatments yeah. more products more different parts of the face and the fact that you can take photos and even things like this like look at each other on zoom 
you know, I'm looking at John, but, you know, when we first started using Zoom a few years yeah. ago, it's very difficult to not look at yourself and go, oh, shit, I look like crap today, <laughs> and, and, and get too overly critical. It's just the technology has been amazing, but there is a side effect to it. Yeah. Do, yeah. do, do you think we'll kind of adjust to it and things will go back to some kind of equilibrium or, or, or norm, norm, normal? <laughs> is that a word anymore? Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, things like this, you know, we're, we're now used to Zoom and I can yeah. give it. Yeah, you know, don't care anymore. But I, th I think the expectation will always be higher. You know, results get better, products get more niche, adverse events get less, and and so the bar is always raising. Mm. And so that paying customer who might spend thousands of dollars on on some filler or some tox or whatever, they're not going to be happy with an average result. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're going to want more. So it does put more pressure on more risk. And I think John's made a very sensible decision to just step away from it. <laughs> so how do, how do I sign up for clinical trials, John? Yeah, I'll join you. <laughs> if I would have known it turned out as well for me doing that, I would have done it sooner. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you miss the patient interactions at all? Well, I still have a bit of a private practice. I've been doing this since 87. Right. And so I have my legacy patients that, by the grace of God, they I left Beverly Hills. I moved out of that. I'm in a suburb of L.A., far away from Beverly Hills. And a lot of them followed, right? And good good for us both because we've become friends. I've yeah. treated them, their daughters, their grandkids, you mm. know, everything. So I'm fortunate that the private practice I have left are really quality individuals that I can deal with and like, like I said, we're like friends. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still have a bit of a private practice. The research patients are a totally different creature. Yeah, they're very appreciative of what they're getting. They get paid to get thousands of dollars worth of treatments done by me. So they're they're a very very different creature to deal. With. Yeah, that's much such, more enjoyable. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. Um, I don't suppose you could just give us a quick snapshot of that um, Allegan trial that you mentioned. I think it was just for the, the glabella, can't speak today, and you yes. did the on-label 20, but then you also did 40, 60, 80 units. So again, just summary of that trial, please. Well, as you increase the dose, you increase the duration, but it started to plateau. It just You can't give an infinite dose and get an infinite duration, right? Mm -hmm. There is some point where if you go from 60 to 80 units, yes, the duration extended, but two weeks. And so financially, it just doesn't make sense with the current pricing of toxins here in the States that for two extra weeks, you pay 400 extra dollars, right? Yeah. So the sweet spot, right, in this curve to me was around 40 units, 50 units tops. Okay. Somewhere around 40 to 50 units, you got a really nice exponential, or not exponential, but a really steep increase in duration with a small increase in, in toxins relative to the on label. And then as you kept going, it, it started to plateau out. Yeah. You, so 40 units plus or minus, that's probably the best dose for Botox in the glabella. But it also depends on the volume of reconstitution also. That's yes. a subject I'm sure you'll get into yeah. at some point. Definitely. It's coming next. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's basically reaching that point where you then go to diminishing returns, where the bang for your buck is, is sort of not, doesn't sort of stack up anymore. No, correct. Yeah. Uh, and what's your proposed reason why that happens? I think it's because you've saturated it all. You've, okay. you've got every motor implant completely saturated with toxin. You've still got the, the light chain 
from type A toxin floating around in the cytosol down by the motor end plate. So new SNAP that's coming down the axon is still is now being still attacked by that. And then eventually the, the, the light chain floats off. It's kind of cleared away. And then now the true reparative process can kick in. And so once you've completely 100% saturated, that's the best you're going to get from a single injection. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Um, I'm curious to know what the patients were saying in, the, in these trials. You know, you've identified with whatever toxin up the dose to a point, you know, plateaus, but you get six plus months, maybe maybe eight at best. So that's a bit of a paradigm shift for mm. your patient because, you know, all of our patients are used to coming three, if not four times a year for their toxin. And suddenly you're saying, well, actually, you pay me double and I'll only see you twice a oh. year. Can I add on to that question? Yeah. Sorry. Were these, first of all, um, were these patients that in these trials, are they people that regularly get aesthetic treatments? So that's the first thing I want to know. And secondly, were they told what to expect or were you just oh. doing the treatment and then they were reporting what was happening? Because I'm just trying to think about, you know, placebo effect and all those kinds of things. Sorry, Jake, I hijacked your No, question. no, no. Yeah. It's a fair point. Yeah. And, and I, I would assume it's a double blind, so you wouldn't know what, what they've got. Right. Subjects don't know what they're getting. It's clearly described in the informed consent, the nature of the trial on some level. So it's not like they're completely blinded to the concept. They're completely blinded to what they're getting. Mm. But most of the patients, when I say most, probably 60%, 70% had had previous toxin injections, but there's a year washout. Right. They couldn't have had any for a year, but there were some that were toxin naive uh, also. So, you know, as far as a placebo effect, I don't believe there was a placebo arm. I can't remember. Isn't that horrible? But I, I think they either they got toxin. It was either 20, 40, 60 or 80. But, you know, there might have been a placebo. I don't I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. OK. Um, yeah. So so back to my question. So you've got a patient who maybe has already had toxin in the past. They've had a year washout, but suddenly they, they've got to like seven months and they don't need a repeat dose. That's. Kind of weird for people. Yeah. It's great, but but it is a bit of a mind shift, and you know, and and for us injectors and businesses, maybe we'll come to that at the end. But different patient flow, different way mm. of of juggling your diary. So, what what are your thoughts on what the patients were saying? Well, they loved it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Who comes into your practice and says, "I want a shorter acting filler"? <laughs> well. Yeah, no, I think filler's different, but but the expectation it's going to last longer anyway. It's not going to be four months or three months. But tox, you know, it's been it's been the same, you know, for thirty five years really. So to suddenly change that, even though it's good, it's still a change, and it can unnerve people, or I assume it would. I don't know. Well, the, the, my experience has not been that. Meaning, the only concern they have when you talk about this is, well, if I get a problem, will it last longer? Yes. Which is somewhat legitimate. But if you look at the adverse event profile from all of those trials, I told Allergan in particular when they, I was trying to convince them to do it. I'm like, we, this is where it comes into the field of effect and the volume of reconstitution. Yeah. I said, no, not only will you not, you know, you won't have an increase in adverse events, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be less. Yeah. Because you controlled the field of effect by decreasing the volume of reconstitution. You can't get lidtosis if no toxin gets to the eyelid. Yeah. And the ptosis rate in the Allergan trial was 80% less than the pivotal trial that got it approved. 
And I've told them this before we started. And so when you give this larger dose, the patient is somewhat afraid that they'll have a longer lasting adverse event. But then you have to try to explain to them, no, I'm injecting it more concentrated. So believe it or not, it's probably safer. Yeah, and it's a it's a bit of a pitch, but they get it. If you know, it doesn't take long for them to understand this concept. Do you do you think there's any potential for you know less experienced injectors who you know don't know their anatomy as well as they potentially should? I mean, I know that a lot of the time in clinics that I've owned in the past, you'd get patients that came back with unusual results, or they got a no response and often a retreat would fix the problem. And then of course we get the excuse, oh, it must've been a bad batch of tox or something along <laughs> those lines, right? And often they haven't, you know, gotten to the muscle belly or they haven't hit the, the muscle correctly. So, you know, almost having it more diluted in some ways, I know you're saying it's not as accurate, might give people some leeway not to be quite as accurate or quite up to, up to speed in terms of hitting the muscle directly and in the right way. So do do you think there's any risk for someone that's less experienced to potentially run into problems with a higher dose when they're not really that good on their anatomy or not as experienced as they should be? If they concentrate it, no. Or, you know, if you control the field of effect, again, if you can't, if no toxin gets to the levator muscle, you will not have lid toasts. It's impossible, right? Yeah, I, I really want to unpack what you what you started with, uh, John, because there'll be some people listening who maybe sort of didn't quite understand. So, in your trials where you did the double dosing, triple dosing, etc., the key was that you used less re, uh, diluent, or, or you reconstituted it tighter. I think you used the word before. Focused. S- focused. Sorry, that's the word. So you've got more tox in less volume. So it's more like a precision-guided bomb than a <laughs> scatter bomb in, in sort of military terms. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your question, David. If you've got a laser-guided bomb, you're going to get less collateral damage. Oh, yeah. I just sort of meant it like not so not just as much in relation to like eyelid ptosis, but just in terms of getting asymmetry or just missing something or... I, I, yeah, yeah I, I, I guess... Well, well, let's ask John. Did you find that... I mean, David was asking before this podcast, frontalis, I don't think we've discussed in any of your studies, or I didn't see it mentioned, but that's a tricky muscle for, you know, for many injectors. And if you do a higher dose in frontalis, there's potential more risk of dropping and asymmetry and Spock brows and all the rest of it. So what's your experience of upping the dose in a frontalis? As long as you decrease the volume of reconstitution, this concept, believe it or not, I tell people, you do not have to change where you're currently injecting or how at all. Okay. However you're injecting Botox now or any botulinum toxin, don't change a thing. Double the dose and cut the volume of reconstitution in half. Start with that. And I don't even ask them what dose they're using. Yeah. And I don't even ask them what volume of reconstitution it is. I go, you need to make a leap of faith here. And you got to try it. Don't change where you're injecting at all, but double whatever dose you're using, provided they're on label and whatnot, yeah. and cut yeah. the volume, whatever you're using in half. And you will see that you're able to safely inject the same muscle that you've always been injecting the same way. And the good news is your duration extends. I still inject the forehead and get problems with, you know, a Spock guy or some, you know, it happens. When I first started doing, uh, Botox injections in the early 90s, 
I did the forehead as a two-stage procedure. Right. I told him right up front, you're going to do it. You're going to come back in two weeks and I'm going to adjust it. And I did that for probably three or four years until I finally went, you know, I think I can do this in one go. But even today, I, I had a lady that came in. She had a little more here than on the other side. Yeah, it happens. It's life. Mm. It's a tough muscle to get perfectly right all the time. Yeah, and you've got so much variation from individual to individual. People with short foreheads, long foreheads, males, females, different brow profiles. Yeah, it's a lot of variance. But you won't see an increase in adverse events from what you're currently getting. Yeah. That's the Yeah. So you came up with an equation. I don't want to get it wrong, so you can quote it. But what is your equation to sort of explain this concept in one sentence? (laughs) Field of effect is equal to the volume times the dose. Right. So field of effect is how far the toxin has spread and affected the underlying muscle. Yeah. Now, you can control that field of effect two ways. You can increase it or decrease the size of it by increasing or decreasing the volume or the dose. Yeah. It's not a hard concept. And what? I found fascinating, even though it makes total sense from what you just said, was you could do the same dose as on label, but in a more concentrated solution and get a better result with the same dose. So it's not even more expensive. So that was really interesting. Well, because when I got all the data, well, when the Allergan data came out, I looked at it and I went, wait a minute. We used 20 units focused on that trial. And I, I, determine i if you notice all the volumes of reconstitution in all three trials are the same that wasn't by random chance Mm i can tell you now right so when i looked at the 20 units with half the on-label volume of reconstitution and compared that same 20 units to the pivotal trial which had the on-label volume of reconstitution the focused 20 units markedly outperformed the on-label pivotal trial approved uh, dose. And I'm like, well, why is that? Why did the same 20 units behave so radically different? So then I thought, okay, it could be a fluke, could be weird, could be this trial, whatever. So then when the, I think it was the Mertz data came out next, the one Zeeman, there it was again. The same 20 units of Zeeman, when it was focused, more concentrated, did way better than the 20 units that had the standard on-label volume of reconstitution. So there were two trials in a row that had that signal. Well, guess what the Desport trial had? Same thing, right? So then I had to say, well, this must be true. It's two, It can't be just coincidence that these three trials had that. So then you got to have a reason why. Yeah, And for me, it was by focusing this, less toxin drifted away from your intended muscle that you wanted to inject. So I came up with this concept of the relative concentration gradient, because the only thing that's important is what the muscle sees. Yeah. It's not what you inject. It's what the muscle sees. And by focusing it, the muscle, in a sense, sees that 20 units as a larger dose because when you use more volume on label, more of it drifted into the forehead. And we could see that when you raise your eyes, you could see that the frontalis was affected. But when you focused it, not as much got into the frontalis, if at all. Yeah. So the relative concentration gradient for the focused on label dose to the muscle 
seem like a larger dose. And we know what happens when you give a larger dose. Yeah. You get a long So that was the explanation. And I called it cold versus old. Yeah. Concentrated on labeled dose versus the on labeled dose. So I turned to the three companies, the big ones, and said, give me some money. <laughs> <laughs> and they did to see if this is true. And I think I overzealously focused the first two trials and I concentrated it too much because it didn't show that same effect to be true. There were some problems, though, when you get down, I kiddingly say, to the quantum level of toxin injections instead of general relativity, the world of the large versus the world of the small, <laughs> that the syringe now becomes a problem yeah. because it's not able to deliver effectively what you need to do. And so the third trial that I did, I backed it up to the volume that was used for those escalating dose trials, the 0.25 ml as the total volume to put it in. And that worked. It showed that the 20 units that was in the 0.25 ml total volume to put in the glabella, half the unlabeled volume, worked better than the unlabeled. So cold worked better than old for the third trial because I loosened it up a little bit. I let the field of effect uh, enlarge a little. And then the syringe was able to do a better job of delivering it where I wanted to go. Mm. If you guys are listening, thinking, wow, I I don't fully understand. We'll put this in the slides when we do the webinar with John. (laughs) Well, that kind of leads... Sorry, John, what are you saying? No, but I think that that then explains it. Because I, when I saw the first two trials, I thought, I think I've focused this too hard. Yeah. The toxin isn't getting to the whole muscle now. I've gone too far. You can run an equation both ways, right? Yeah. If too big, it can be too small. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what I did. And when I loosened it back up to the volumes that we used for these uh, escalating dose trials, it worked. Mm. I remember your slide, which made me laugh uh, when you described that. It was uh, the Goldilocks and, and and the three bears, and you said the porridge was either too hot or too too cold, and 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 the dose that you just spoke about was in the middle. It was just right. Yeah. So yeah. Well, that kind of leads us on to sort of the next question, which was, you know, after you sort of had, had done these uh, and sort of initial trials and come to these conclusions, you, you sort of hypothesized that maybe we should be looking at different reconstitutions of different parts of the face. And in your presentation that I had a look at last night that Jake kindly sent to me, um, you gave this amazing, uh, well, it was an amazing, it was an experiment, I guess, um, <laughs> with the perioral region where you injected 90 units of disport, which sounds absolutely astronomical. So can you talk to us about that a bit? I mean, that, I mean, yeah. that's nine times what your average injection yeah. in Australia would do. Yeah. So that's way beyond normal. Yeah. So tell us about your patient's <laughs> experience. Well, see, now, I'm fortunate. I Well, one of the good things about aging, in a sense, is you get hopefully smarter, but I have patients that have been with me a while. And so I thought to myself, when we take one volume of reconstitution and put it in a bottle, we've created one hammer, and then we try to beat every nail, every indication in the face with it. Well, my God, look at the difference in the muscles. That makes no, that's just stupid. Mm. Sorry, stupid. And so I said, there's got to be a proper dose and volume of reconstitution, essentially for every indication. So I started talking to my colleagues about that. And of course, I'm getting used to it or I've been used to it. They look at you like you're crazy. (laughs) 
And then I said, well, how can I get their attention? Because I did that initially at the Vegas cosmetic meeting when I started. I injected a whole bottle of Desport, a whole bottle, a whole bottle of Botox, a whole bottle of Desport, and a whole bottle of Xeomin on myself 30 days before and said, look, but I focused it, right? I go, look, you can do this. It's not crazy. So I said, I need to do something similar to that. So I convinced the patient to allow me to inject 90 units of Desport into the upper lip because I said, okay, what is the toxin that most people feel spreads further than others? I think that's Desport. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But the the general consensus would be Desport. Then I said, what is an area that is the least forgiving? The upper lip is in that small group. Then I said, and what's a dose that people would think this is insane. And I said, <laughs> units. So then I said, if my equation is correct, I should be able to find a volume that I can reconstitute the bottle, put all uh, 90 units, put it in the lip, and it should, it, damn it, it should work. So I did it to this lady, and it worked actually pretty well. There, She did have functional compromise, and I had her tell you, so you didn't hear it from me. I had the lady, it was the only video in my presentation, yeah. explain what it was like. And she said the first two to four weeks for the 90 units of Desport, it was a little tough. But, and tough. then I said, <laughs> yeah. but, but it wasn't bad because after it wore off, which took months, she let me do it again. This time I did 30 units of Javot, which is 50% more than the on-label dose in the Globella. But I continued to focus. And she said, well, that one was a little tough, but it was better. And she said, I had two weeks that it was kind of funky. And then I put, after that wore off, I put 30 units of Xeomin in her upper lip and concentrated it even more. Now, that's when, and she's 10 days out after I injected 30 units of Xeomin in her upper lip. And she's talking to you because in 10 days, if it's bad, you're going to see it. Yeah. That's the worst, right? She said, I like this. I really, I can do this. And she got a little lip flip from it, too. She's describing a lip flip. Yeah. And, and her vertical lines looking good. Yeah. So what was the final volume of reconstitution? It was 95% less wow. than on label. That's... It was point. I think it was 0.25 ml in the box. I, I want to ask you, and you can tell us about your invention maybe in a second, but you're right. The standard syringes that we use, at least here in Australia, they are either the BD insulin syringes, sort of a 0.3 mil, or um, I use a different version, but same volume. So how are you doing this? Because, you know, to add such tiny amounts of saline into a, you know, a vial of Botox or Dysport, whatever... You, there's almost no liquid in there, and then you're drawing up like minuscule amounts. So how how are you doing it accurately and dosing it? You know, I got. I mean, am I allowed to show it? Yeah, of course you can. We'll um, we'll post this for our Patreons yes. only. Okay, hold on. Let me grab yeah. my phone. Okay. Um, I didn't want this to be a commercial, right? So <laughs> that's I, okay. Well, what I did was I said to myself, every syringe in my drawer stinks. They're just no good. Yeah, you can't go forward with this now because you're you're stuck. This whole concept of trying to figure out the volume of reconstitution that's best for every indication, um, you're stuck. 
Yeah. Because your tool is is too crude. Yeah. Yeah, right? I agree. Uh, and to be yeah. fair, you know, an insulin syringe again. I think we asked Jean this. She said, "Well." It was just random, you know. It's for insulin. It's not yeah. for Botox. Yeah. It was never designed for Botox. So what I said then is, well, I have to, <laughs> I have to invent a new syringe. Yeah. So the syringe hasn't been improved on really since 900 AD. It was originally a Persian doctor developed it to extract cataracts. Now you talk about the proverbial stick in the eye. Yeah. That's about <laughs> as it gets. I just cringe even thinking about it. But they saw better without the lens than with it. Yeah. Right? So that's the guy that invented uh, the syringe. It hasn't really changed. So I was sitting around just thinking, going, okay, you know, whatever. And I don't, I can't tell you why these unusual thoughts come into my head. <laughs> but all of a sudden I thought, the wheel and axle. Why don't we do this so i don't know if you can see so john is showing us a new prototype imagine an aircraft carrier it's got a flat deck yeah yes so i i designed this carrier to have a wheel on it Mm -hmm. and here's the flat of the syringe the syringe is flat yes so this carrier you know this is a beaten up prototype but it's just snap bleeding. The real ones works. So what you do instead of using these muscles, which actually, when you use a syringe, you're actually using your forearm. Yes. These were designed to hold on to trees. <laughs> this is fine motor skill. Yeah. Right. And so I said, well, we should be using that. Right. So what you do is you just roll the wheel. That's amazing. So mm. just to explain to the listeners, so it, it doesn't look like a needle. It's sort of a flat thing with a, a wheel oh, on it. On here. You yeah. put a needle at the end, but you just roll the the carrier yeah. down the flat, and the carrier pulls the plunger. Yes. So instead of you pushing on the plunger, you roll the wheel down the flat of the aircraft carrier, yeah. and it pulls the cartridge, which pushes the plunger. So the drops that you can inject with this are 0.0025. Wow. And did you use that in your, have you used that on a patient yet? Or is this just a prototype? Well, when I say prototype, I tried to sell this to a company and came very close for a a staggering amount of money. Yeah. (laughs) But that didn't turn out because COVID hit. Yeah. George Floyd hit, yeah. mergers of the company occurred, and it was like, oh, please. So, and it was a prototype at the time. And I, I call it AccuTalks. That's the trademark name. Yeah. So I had AccuTalks 1.0. And so I said, you've got to make a decision. Are you going to carry this through, or are you just going to throw it in a drawer and say, oh, well? So I manned up and did it, wrote some checks. This is now Acutox 5.0. Right. And literally, I've made the aluminum. If you don't know anything about injection molding, which I didn't, now I have a PhD in it. You, <laughs> I'm at the part where I've made the metal molds. I can now make a million of these, right? And I'm just about ready to tell them we're ready to go, start to mass produce them. When I say ready to go, 30 days. 
It's been six years. Right. Wow. Well, we Where's would you? love to partner with you. To partner with you, <laughs> yes, and also you know help you with your rollout, your trials, whatever you need. Because I sent you the patent, right? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you know, joking aside, I, I really do feel like that the tool, both the you know the reconstitution plus the the thing that we're actually injecting it with, it's not really fit for purpose no, it's not it's um it blunts it's hard to control it drips uh, you get uh, bubbles in there all, all sorts of drama and especially when you're dealing with this type of concentration <laughs> you don't want to make waste a single drop it's uh, literally yeah. plunger literally hits the metal of the needle it loses 0.007 ml yeah. that's what the engineers say yeah that's the total volume you lose and that's literally the amount that's in the metal part of the needle yeah. yeah. Can I ask you, um, talking about these various constitutions that you might have going on in your in your clinic, so you've got, you know, a, a reconstitution made up for frontalis versus sort of crow's feet or glabella. So how does that work from a practical perspective when you've got like dozens of bottles with different reconstitutions? And so I'm just thinking from a practical perspective because, you know, you're, you're a, a single injector and you've got, you know, as you said, a fairly scaled down practice these days. But if we were to sort of multiply this out or sort of look at like a busy clinic with multiple injectors, multiple injecting rooms. And if your method was to sort of become universally accepted, how would that work from a practical perspective with so much going on? I didn't say it would be easy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's easier than you think. Yeah. Because first of all, you know, we know toxins last longer than four hours after you reconstitute. Yeah. Well, that's what I was originally told back in 1991. Well, not true. All you have to do is have a color-coded sticker that you put on the bottle, mm. and you know that that's you know glabella, that's upper lip, that's whatever. The other thing is, it isn't like each muscle has its own absolute unique one, because I think the concentration for the glabella is about is half of what we've been doing. Hmm. meaning it's not 2.5 it's closer to 1 to 1.25 that's yeah. the sweet spot that you can deliver 40 units into the glabella the dose that's proper using that volume of reconstitution and get this extended duration without an increase in adverse events i think that's also the same one for crow's feet yeah fortunately right mm-hmm. and but when you talk about the platysma or the dao or the upper lip see now it's a little different but the dao and the upper lip is the same, mm. I think. So see, here's one dilution. Here's one dilution for these two indications. Yeah. So it isn't like if there's six indications in the face, you have to have six different ones. You probably need three, yeah. and you'll be able to do it. You color code it. The other thing is, this is simple math equations that if you take, if you say, gee, I need to make, you can't make it more concentrated but you can add to it. So you can take an upper lip bottle and you can turn it into a glabella. You can turn it into a platysma because you're adding fluid to it. Once you've added fluid, you can't take it out to concentrate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not saying that it isn't going to require change and everybody hates change, but Darwin has a saying for that. Those that fail to adapt die. And I think that if this catches on, which is going to take, years i don't expect this to be next week but i think eventually this is going to raise the bar for the injectors and it's going to allow you to differentiate yourself 
from everybody else. If you want to be the best that you can be, you're going to have to embrace this one way or another, I think, because it really is the best way to do it. Well, it's the same concept with ultrasound, John. I mean, you know, that's not a new invention, but a new introduction into our industry and there's been a lot of put and jake and i've spoken about it lots there's been lots of put pushback from people not being on board with the idea of ultrasound because it's difficult you've got to learn a new language so this is kind of the similar concept right this is a very immature underdeveloped industry when you compare it to other disciplines within medicine and science and so you know progression of time is progression of knowledge and as you said if you want to be the best then you've got to be prepared to do things that other people aren't that's just that's just the way life is right have you ever been to australia have I? Yes. You want to come back? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a course. Well, I mean, like genuinely, this is quite novel for, for even experienced injectors. And I think it'd be cool to do a day course where we just walk through this slowly and, yeah. and actually do it on some models. I think it'd be really cool. Film it. Yeah. I'll have my syringe then. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You bring, bring the 5.0 with you. Um, I was yeah. kind of thinking like of a graded way of, of someone who, who might want to do this but but in a in a staged way so you could do the same dose in the cold reconstitution so that's that's less of a leap it's just less liquid but c- keeping the dosing the same so it doesn't feel t- double the duration correct what is you're going to get about a 20 25 bump on the duration by simply concentrating which is kind yeah. of good it's like baby steps yeah training and then, wheels <laughs> and then the next one would be you know double the dose in the cold dilution so then you're really going to extend it to you know six ish mm-hmm. months and oh, then yeah, if you want to sure. get wacky do john's 90 disport in around the mouth and and really start <laughs> <laughs> really start playing around with it but I, I think that would be like a nice graded way of introducing it without completely yeah. confusing yourself yeah. and i i guess um we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of talk about the commercial side of this and i can hear injectors in their cars or in their homes yelling going well this means my patients are going to come back less often and how am i going to charge for this am i going to charge you know more is is, is i mean how, how are you going to practically and commercially roll this out and what and what are the implications and i heard your arguments which i thought were very thorough and, and well thought out you know patients would like less needles in their face obviously they've got better things to do with their time than to drive back and forth from your office and sit in your waiting room um having something I give yeah 20 percent discount to take the larger dose. Right, okay. Does Einstein prove time is money? I'm kidding. Yeah. (laughs) I give them a 20% discount if they double the dose. So I don't double the price, I give them 20% off. Mm -hmm. And there's this table that I have that shows that over 10 years, you actually are injecting the same number of units. Yeah. And even though you take a 20% discount, which you'll say, well, I didn't, I could have made 20% more money. You made... 20% 20% less money with 50% less work. Yeah. And life's hard enough. It's harder if you're stupid. <laughs> Why work twice as hard for, you know, when we work twice as hard for 20% more money, it, you know, you can work half as much and only lose 20%. Now those half times that you're not seeing, you can be doing other stuff. So you're going to recapture that lost 20%. Because you you aren't seeing them as often, and, and I'm old enough that there was a product called collagen. Oh yeah, yeah, and well, that was it, right? And then this new product came out called Restylane, and the same argument was said by everyone: "Oh, woe is me! 
Why would I use Restylane? It's going to last so much longer. <laughs> I won't see the patients. I'm going to go poor and my kids won't eat. <laughs> no, that's not what happened, right? Because patients saw a value in it. More people came in that wouldn't because collagen only lasted, you know, 10 minutes. And, and so they came in because these products lasted longer. And then you have so many more modalities to offer them now that, than you did back in 1990, yeah. right? That they'll find other places to spend the money in your suite. Yeah. So the thing with collagen, oh, I don't want to use that Restylane. I'm going to you know, make less money. That's not true. And the same is here for the I believe for optimizing toxins to the way it should be done. Uh, you will make more money. I have to say that that time aspect uh, was highly relevant for me when I when I listened to your talk. That was one of my key things that I really sort of learned because I'm lucky. I've got a busy practice, but it's got to a point where my regulars sometimes complain they can't get in because my book is stuffed with regulars doing Botox, right? And so if I can halve that time or, or free up half of my diary and see people you know, for less, but earn a similar amount. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's truly, you yeah. know, and, and for, and for people that are injecting that aren't doctors. So for all your nurses out there who need to get scripts and need to pay for that script every time, yes, there's a cost saving there. And then I think just from an ethical perspective, I mean, we all stand on our high horses and say, we're all about patient safety. We're all about doing the best things by the patient. Well, then this shouldn't even really become a factor. Yeah. If you truly believe in what you say and you're all about the best for the patient, then if there's a protocol that's come out that has proven to be safe, effective, with less adverse adverse effects, then you're not being true to your word if you don't take that on for commercial reasons. And I think, you know, the bottom line is if if you do what you do with passion, do it for the right reasons and your patients are getting the best that they can possibly get, the money will take care of itself. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. You can't buy time. No. You, you just can't. And, oh. and we struggle with this podcast. Like literally week by week, we're scrambling to get things done. So if we can get f- my lecture, the most valuable thing you would sell is your time. Yeah. Yes. Can't yeah. make more. Yeah. Can't make more. Well, to finish this podcast, I've got one or two questions. What toxins do you stock in your own clinic and why? Well, this is where I have to be Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. <laughs> All of them. You, but, but you you told us at the very start, oh, I can say what I want and no one's going to come and kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I also cannot pick a favorite. because you know why? Because you can make all these dogs do the same trick. Yeah. Absolutely you can. You can, as some, some people say one's better than the other, and I'll say why. You know, the duration or whatever. You just didn't figure out how to dose and dilute it properly. Yeah. You can make them all. And those studies proved it. All of those high uh, escalating dose trials showed without a doubt they all can do the same thing. Yeah. It's like that old saying, a bad tradesman always blames his tools. Mm. I can tell you yeah. what, which toxin I use, the, one I, the, the cheapest one I can get. You must be That's on a pretty the- sweet deal being one of the <laughs> researchers for all of the companies. Oh, no, no. But what I'm saying is... Extra black diamond. Yeah. <laughs> all the same thing. Why would I pay, you know, X for one bottle and 2X for another? Yes. Now, I'm going to buy it for X. If I can make these two dogs do the same trick, whichever one costs me the less... That's the one I'll use. Well, that was sort of my point, really. You know, at, at the end of the day, if you can use all of these tools well, 
it comes down to cost for you rather than what does the patient get because the patient will always get a good result. So I often scratch my head and wonder why someone would stock six different toxins when you know, you can be a master of one. Yeah. But, you know, everyone's different and sometimes you get patient preference. They ask for the new one or they ask for, you know, the one that they're used to and that's fine as well. Yeah. So what do you think the future looks like? You, you sort of said that it's going to be a while before this becomes universally accepted as best practice and it's everywhere. But what do you think needs to happen to get that message out and what kind of barriers do you think are still there? And, you know, hopefully this podcast will help get the word out there because we do have quite a few people listening around the world now. So at the very least, it'll get people prick, get people to prick their ears up and at least think about it more. But how do you think we get the message out and how long do you think it's going to take? Well, uh, the trials helped. But yeah. That's only information that goes to a physician. One of the things that helped was when Daxify launched because they did promote an extended duration. And of course, the consumer loves that. I mean, again, who comes in saying, I want my toxin or filler to last shorter? No one. I can tell you, no one in my practice. (laughs) So that helped a lot. (laughs) And with the increased knowledge from physicians that any of these toxins can get a six-month or longer duration, and them getting away from the fear that I'm going to lose money, which is not true, It'll gradually happen. The consumer, though, once they're educated, they're the ones that are going to drive the bus. Yeah. Because they're going to tell the doctor, wait, you don't know how to inject this so I can last six months, but the guy across the hall can? Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. Darwin has so selected, I'm going across the hall. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One final question for me. I'm not sure if Jake's got anything else, and it's kind of, I probably should have asked it sooner, but... This whole concept of resistance, which has become more and more spoken about and reported again, you know, how true is it all? I'm not too sure. There's probably lots of factors as to why it happens. But if you're increasing someone's dose, is there a risk that we could potentially see more instances of resistance? Because I know this, the jury's kind of still out. Is it dose dependent? Is it, is it duration or frequency dependent? So what are your thoughts on that? Well, no one knows if it's dose duration, I mean, dose in, intervals, yeah. the, the time interval, or both, probably both. If you look at what an allergist does, you come in every week or two and you get a small little mm-hmm. bit in your arm and you repeat that until your immune system recognizes the protein and forms neutralizing antibodies. And do neutralizing antibodies occur in the aesthetic arena? Yes. Very, very, very small compared to the therapeutics you know, those people to get. But Allergan reformulated Botox in 1997, and that dropped the uh, neutralizing antibody formation dramatically. Yeah. Now, I'm going to disclose something for you guys, and, and this is not, this is I just found out myself, is I have neutralizing antibodies. Mm. So I'm going to disclose right on, I do. How long did it take for me to get them? About 30 years. I abused myself with botulinum toxin more than any person in the world I met <laughs> voluntarily because I was my best lab rat. Because anytime I thought of doing or trying something with doses that were inconceivable to people, I did it to myself. Yeah. So I was my best laboratory. And it took 30 years of me being thoroughly abusive 
to botulinum toxin before this finally happens. So I am now going to abstain for two years, and then I'm going to re-inject myself. I'm also resistant to zeaman. So zeaman does not provide me any benefit. So I'm disclosing to the world, and again, this is relatively new, that I have created neutralizing antibodies in my to myself. But you cannot say, well, see, I told you that high dose thing was going to create problems because no commercially, no one is going to do what I did to myself. And yeah. I assure you. Well, I mean, because I inject bottles at a time in one eye. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I'm sure you weren't joking. You said you did three bottles of different products not that long ago. So which one of them did or didn't work? Oh, all of them don't work. No, no toxin works type A. Right. Type B does. Type I have not tried type B, but I'm sure. It, let me think. Type B for sure should work, myoblock. Type E, oh, I'll find out <laughs> yeah. once it's commercialized. I did the type E trials, yeah. too. It's an interesting product. I also think type E is the Hylinex for type A injections. Yeah. Yes, we saw your final slide of your talk. Yeah. I, I was wondering whether we keep that up our sleeve for a you, type yeah. B uh, yes. podcast at some well, point. Yeah, I mean, should we quickly, I mean, basically... Well, I well mean, let's dangle it, yeah. T yeah t tell us a little bit about it, because, yeah, we, we don't have time now, but let's get you back for another episode, but yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I was doing the type B trials, and I said to myself, wait a minute, both of these things attack SNAP25, yet they're so clinically different. Why? It's one of my favorite words. Why? Because there's got to be a reason. So I started looking a, a deep dive into the molecular level of botulinum toxins. And I found that where it cleaves SNAP25 is different. Mm. Type E cleaves at amino acid from the N-terminus at 27 or 28 amino acids in. Type A cleaves at 9. So I hypothesized that this larger bite that type A takes, I mean, E takes, allows it to be more readily recognized by the repair mechanisms, and that's why it wears off in two weeks. Yeah. And type A, it's just like you take the top of your finger off. Type E is like you bite your finger in half. Yeah. Now, that was just a hypothesis. But I don't think that's true, and I... Because I I got into battles with who I admire and respect greatly Mitchell Brin, Freevert from Zeeman, the, the people in Gal. Because they told me this isn't true. Type E is not going to reverse Type A, and I would battle back and forth, pulling articles and whatever. But there is no doubt in my mind that that's true. And Allergan is going to look at this in particular. But I think I've I had to do a much deeper. That was a superficial explanation that seemed to fit. But I think I have a better explanation. But it's much more involved, and that'll be the dangler. So, the, so the practical use would be if you get a ptosis from a eight month, you know, uh, <laughs> high dose cold dilution toxin, you go no problem. Have some type E, and you'll be right in two weeks. In two weeks, correct. That is Ooh. what I would. I am convinced even though i've never done it there you go world but, exclusive again on inside aesthetics yeah there Ooh, we go exciting. we Very always good. bring the news to you guys <laughs> well john I, I think i could talk to you all day and we're definitely going to get you back for well 
maybe a type B, a type E. I don't know. We yeah. could just go on forever. And then also... Um, webinar. Webinar, yes. Yeah. So we shall speak offline about um, all of that. But thank you so much. It's been... Honestly, I, I love these talks. Yeah. Did you enjoy it, that one? It, or even for someone like me that's not medically trained, I've just, you know, business background in the space, I, I find it truly fascinating and I'm learning all the time. So thank you for being so generous and uh, answering all of my questions or all our questions. I had fun. Again, it's all about having fun at this point in my life. Fantastic. Well, hang on the, on the line after and we'll speak, but uh, enjoy your day and we'll speak soon. Okay. Take Thanks. care. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.